This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of The Takeout. Welcome to my office here in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. You know... We're constantly moving the show around. We're getting to restaurants when we can, sometimes from my dining room, sometimes from the office, because I'm here at work today. You see the movie posters and jazz greats behind me. That's because they inspire me. They're, they're parts of the uh, pop culture thing I dig. So our guest this week is a rarity on the show. We've never done this before, had the same guest in the same calendar year. But she's an incredibly important voice just now always has been, but just now a particularly important voice in the U.S. House of Representatives. And whatever becomes of the unfinished part of the fiscal side of the Biden agenda will likely flow through her or the caucus she represents. Her name is Pramila Jayapal, congresswoman from the great state of Washington, and she is the leader of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives. Congresswoman, great to have you with us. Major, it's so good to see you. Thanks for having me back. So last time we had you on the show was January 21st. We talked a lot then about the aftermath of the insurrection on January 6th. I have some questions about that we'll get to in a minute. But we're recording this on October 12th. I want everyone to know that. So when you hear this show, some of this stuff may be taken overtaken by events, but I don't think so. The first thing I want to ask you, Congresswoman Jayapal, is what the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, said in a letter to all of you, members of the House Democratic Caucus, last night. And the key paragraph, as I'm sure you're well aware, reads as follows. Talking about the Build Back It Better agenda of the president's. Overwhelmingly, I quote the speaker directly here. The guidance I am receiving from members is to do fewer things well so that we can still have a transformative impact on families in the workplace and responsibly address the climate crisis. A Build Back Better agenda for jobs and the planet for the children. Is that what you're... You believe the overwhelming guidance is for the speaker to do fewer things well, which means, if I understand the speaker correctly, less money spent and fewer items under that spending umbrella to do them for a shorter period of time. Well, as we've always said, um, you know, we understand that 98 percent of Democrats in the House, the Senate and the White House agree with 70 percent of the American people on the Build Back Better Act that we had drafted that had really a whole set of transformative investments. And the price tag on it was three point five trillion over 10 years. 
Um, we now understand that there are two Democrats in the Senate who do not are not yet on board with that. And so we have to negotiate. I mean, there's no way around it because we need every single Democrat in the Senate and in the House um, to pass this thing. At the same time, I think our caucus, and we have 96 members in our caucus, the majority of our caucus in two meetings now, um, one in person and one on the phone, have been very clear that we can't pit one investment against another investment. Five months ago, the Progressive Caucus outlined, because we believed in prioritizing early, so we outlined five buckets that we care deeply about. One is the care economy, that includes childcare, paid leave, home and community-based care. That includes uh, health care, really expanding Medicare benefits for seniors so that they get dental, vision, and hearing, and negotiating the price of prescription drugs, something that the vast majority of Americans know that we must do. The third is around climate action, really taking bold climate action to reduce carbon emissions. That is critically important, again, for everybody. The fourth was uh, around immigration, making sure we lift up the immigrant workers that we've been calling essential. We need to make sure that they really are essential and we need to help them contribute to our economy as they have been doing. And the final one, um, is around housing, making sure that we are un that that we are housing the unhoused across the country. So we already narrowed, and what we have said consistently is that those five priorities still need to be in any final bill. But we will accept that for some of them, we need to shorten the time. So um, that is still our position, and you know, and I believe that that is uh, we've communicated that to the White House. Um, we have communicated that to the Speaker. We will again. Um, and, you know, and I think that's going to be ultimately what we need to do if we're going to keep everybody on uh, on the table. Can you fit all five buckets into a bill that is two trillion dollars over 10 years? Well, we don't know what the final number is. And I keep saying to people, I know everybody wants to focus on the number, but it depends on how the pro what programs are in there and how it's structured. And so we do believe that you can significantly cut down on the price tag by funding some of these programs for a shorter period of time. Make sure that the benefits are universal and accrue to people immediately, not in three years or five years, but something that people can tangibly feel right away. And then, you know, deal with the extension of those programs down the road when people see how transformative they are. So that's what we believe is the best thing, because, Major, we can't pit childcare against climate change. You know, we can't pit home and community based care against housing. Um, that just doesn't make sense. And the reality is that each of these programs serves a slightly different set of constituencies. So in order for everybody to really feel like these programs are making a difference for them, and they are, of course, the president's agenda, they're what we ran on, we do need to be able to deliver um, on these five critical areas. You mentioned universal in the application of these benefits. As you well know, the two senators on the Democratic side that you mentioned in general, I'll mention their names, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Cinnamon of Arizona, have said they are more in favor of means testing these benefits. Means testing, put simply, is to place an income threshold upon which, if your income is above that, you no longer qualify. You oppose that. Well, the, the thing about means testing is a lot of the ways in which we've done means testing in this country have been really ineffective. There are simple 
not complicated, but simple ways to ensure that the richest people do not get the benefits. I'll give you an example. We did this with the ACA subsidies where we said in the American Rescue Plan, where we said that no one is going to pay more than 8% of their income on health care. And in this situation, we're saying the same thing with childcare. It is a form of means testing, but it is extremely simple and it adjusts for higher in uh, higher cost of living areas where two school teachers, for example, who are earning $68,000 aren't cut off by some random number. And that is to say no family is going to pay more than 7% of their income on childcare. If you're very wealthy, 7% of your income is not going to qualify you for subsidies. So you will get means tested out, but it's simple, it's universal, and it adjusts for the ways in which costs differ, whether you're in, you know, Georgia, Florida, Texas, or uh, or Washington State, is that something you expect those two senators to embrace? Well, I hope so. We're working on that right now, and I think you know having people understand what is a simple way of doing this is really important. You know, we have to learn from what we did in the American Rescue Plan. I'll give you another example of something we um, ended up you know, putting in at the last minute to the rescue plan, which is the idea of self-attestation. Instead of really complicated ways of determining, you know, what forms you have to fill out and whether or not you qualify, you can just simply self-attest to your income. It could always be checked against uh, your tax returns later. But that's something we put in place after the rental assistance program was so complicated because of all the means testing that was in there. And finally, Treasury changed that and said, let's just do self-attestation. And guess what? All of a sudden, the money started flowing because these complex requirements are not only, you know, require a lot of money to administer, sometimes, you know, actually overwhelming whatever savings you might get, but they also are the barriers to the very people that need to get those benefits. So let's be smart. Let's learn from what we did in the ARP um, and let's make sure that these are universally acceptable and that as many people as possible get it that need it. Before we go to our first break, we've got about 30 seconds, Congresswoman Jayapal. How close are you? Would you say you're 70, 80, 90 percent there on these negotiations? Well, it's not us. <laughs> it's, the, it's the two senators that we're waiting on. And I would say that I've heard that things are moving, uh, but they are more, moving more slowly, perhaps, than some of us would like to see. But they are moving. And so we're just staying at the table. We're being patient. Um, the most important thing is to get this done, to get both bills, the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Act, to the president's desk so he can sign it and we can deliver on these transformative policies to the American people. A phrase everyone in our audience better get used to. Nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. I'm Major Garrett. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just one second. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. However you find this show, thank you very much. You can find it, of course, as you know, Early Adopters, Podcast Platform, Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, more than 70 radio stations around the country, including Cairo and Seattle, been with us for many, many years, uh, an important affiliate of ours. Thank you to that. And, of course, on our streaming digital service, CBSN. You know the show sometimes delves a little bit into the weeds. We did a little bit of policy, got down into it a little bit in the first segment. That's why you're here, because this is not a soundbite-driven show. Our conversation today and every week is never soundbite-driven. That's why you're here, and I thank you for that. Our guest is Pramila Jayapal. She is the leader of the Democratic Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives. Her home district is in Seattle, Washington. That's why I mentioned Cairo, our affiliate there. So, Congresswoman... um, do you have any regrets, the Progressive Caucus have any regrets about what the Democrats in Washington are going through now, which is a series of headlines that talk about drift, disarray, discord, and nothing getting done? Because that has, for the better part of the last 10 or 12 days, been the overarching narrative about what isn't happening in Washington and why. Well, I appreciate your show because I think you get into how these things come together. This is the process of negotiation. And, uh, you know, it took five months to negotiate the infrastructure bill. Um, We also need time to figure out and negotiate the Build Back Better Act, even though we already have a negotiation that led to 98% of us agreeing um, on the content and with the president when, you know, on his agenda. But it, it, is, it is, as you know, a bit of a messy process. I don't think we're in disarray. I don't think we're in drift. I think we're about delivering. And that will happen. We will get it done. There are some wonky things that we have to work out. Um, and it is a process. So I, I just think people have to be patient. Um, it's always more exciting probably for the news to say that we're in disarray and that things are, you know, uh, we're all fighting with each other, but that's not actually the case. 98% of us agree. We're trying to get two, two people on board. I think we'll get it done. Are those two Democrats, Democrats in good standing from your vantage point? They're, they're Democrats. They're part of the same team. They're part of the, you know, they're part of the Democratic Party. We all play on the same team. We got to get this done as much as our frustrations might be there with each other. And sometimes those things play out. I try not to let it play out in public. I believe it's important to um, just really be clear about what we're doing and that we do play on the same team and that this is the president's agenda. We're not talking about some crazy agenda. This is the agenda we all ran on. And it's the agenda that President Biden five months ago, now probably five and a half months ago, rolled down, you know, Pennsylvania Avenue from the Capitol to, uh, or sorry, from the White House to the Capitol and laid this agenda out to the American people. And the American people are so excited about it, Major. That's one of the things I think is important. 70% of Americans agree with this agenda. And in fact, if you add in a piece that we haven't talked about, which is the tax increases um, on the wealthiest individuals and the biggest corporations to pay their fair share finally, so that the ultimate cost of this bill, whatever the price tag is, is zero because it's all paid for through making the tax system more fair. The approval of Americans goes even further up because that's what we should be doing. Make the tax system fair and use that money to invest in working people's lives so that they have a better future. Right. To that point, um, there was an article recently in the Washington Post that talked about the frustration among grassroots Democratic activists who worked very hard in the 2020 election. They don't see things happening on this particular spending agenda. They don't see things happening to their satisfaction on voting rights, police reform. 
And they express in their own words, not from the punditocracy here in Washington, but these are grassroots activists, deep and abiding frustration. In the Washington Post, you can see it elsewhere. Charles Blow, a very well-known columnist in the New York Times, said, Democrats, you are losing ground. All this time going on in October that you're negotiating and talking amongst each other is time lost for the narrative for Democrats as they approach the midterm elections. How do you evaluate those two things? Well, I agree with that. I mean, I'm hearing it from my own constituents and we hear it across the country. And what is the crux of that problem? Let's be clear. The crux is a uh, Jim Crow legacy uh, rule in the Senate called the filibuster that does not allow for a simple majority that represents the vast majority of the country in the Senate to be able to move forward on these critical bills, not even to be able to bring them up for a vote. And so that filibuster rule, since your show does get a little wonky, I'll just say that filibuster rule basically says, well, it does say that you need 60 votes to even be able to bring a bill to the floor for a vote. And so 40 senators who represent a tiny portion of the country and are not in the leadership, Republican senators, they can control what does or does not come to the floor. So the House has passed a voting rights bill. Everybody understands we've got to reform uh, and, and ensure that votes are not suppressed and that everybody has a right to vote because we've seen what Donald Trump and the Republican Party have been doing on this. And so if we are going to address real democracy in this country, we have to pass voting rights. And 40 senators are blocking that from being able to happen. So let's get rid of the filibuster or at a minimum reform it so that it isn't the tyranny of the minority in the Senate. And then we wouldn't have to twist ourselves into these parliamentary pretzels with some uh, parliamentarian who, bless her soul, is unelected um, and somehow gets to make decisions about what we do and don't put into these bills. So it's a little wonky, but I agree with the frustration. And in my world, um, I think the best thing we can do is reform the filibuster so that these things that have majority support in the country and need to be done urgently and people agree on in Democrat, Republican and independent places um, that we can get those done. But you know, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, that the two senators who were talking about earlier in the context of infrastructure and Build Back Better also oppose altering the rules of the filibuster. Well, let's see. I think on um, voting rights, you know, uh, Senator Manchin has been uh, a key player in redrafting the voting rights bill, the, the For the People Act. And um, he now has a bill that he believes is reasonable and that bipartisanship can occur on reasonable bills. That's his belief. Let's see if he can get 10 senators to support that, then maybe we won't need to reform the filibuster. But if he can't, and if we can't get Republican senators to even vote for a debt ceiling increase, which is to pay for past bills and has always been bipartisan, then there's something wrong here in how democracy is or isn't working, or I should say isn't working. And so we got to fix it. And so your sense is, if I hear you correctly, that on those two particular issues, there might be some movement from Senator Manchin. Let's see. I mean, I think that we want to give him a chance to see if if his theory that um, there is some room for bipartisan compromise on these essential issues, um, if he thinks he can get 10 senators with him on those two issues, then great. 
but I think if not, then I think, you know, he also is seeing that this theory of bipartisanship just isn't real. And I'll just say on the filibuster major, um, people who argue that the filibuster helps us to promote bipartisanship, I think are actually incorrect. Um, the reality is that if you have a 60 vote threshold, if you just had two or three or four Republicans who agreed with you, they're not going to come along because th the thing isn't going to pass anyway unless you get 60. So my my belief is that actually, if you want bipartisanship, what you should do is remove the filibuster, allow the three, four, five Republicans to have the power that they should have in a divided Senate instead of giving all the power to 40 Republicans who are never going to agree on anything uh, that Democrats want to do. Prediction from you, Congresswoman Jayapal. It is uh, the end of this year, late December 2021. Does the filibuster still exist when it comes to voting rights and debt ceiling? I think we have reformed the filibuster at that point. That is a prediction. We will keep that. It may be uh, an close. optimistic prediction, but <laughs> we will keep that close at hand. Uh, so I want to set this up for our segment three, which is going to start in just a couple of minutes. So I want you to think about this. A couple of things. So, in addition to filibuster, it feels like we're going to have a December that's going to have a lot of cliffhangers built into it. December third is when the continuing resolution that keeps the government from lapsing into a shutdown expires. It's about when the debt ceiling also possibly expires. And by then, I believe you will have the votes on these other hanging pieces of legislation. So lots to talk about as we approach November and December. We'll pick up all of that with Pramila Jayapal, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of The Takeout in just one second. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Leader of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives, Pramila Jayapal, is our guest. Congresswoman, sketch out December for my audience. It sounds, if you read all of the uh, commentary and uh, various news articles, like it's going to be kind of grim. Well, December's always grim. Uh, I've, been, I've been in Congress. This is my fifth year now. And every year I think I'm going to get, uh, you know, Christmas holiday, uh, end of the year holiday. And, you know, somehow it just does not happen. Uh, yes, because... D.C. is a great buzzkill <laughs> for the holiday season. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, because what happens is we don't get agreement, I think, in part because we have this filibuster problem in the Senate. And, um, and, and then things just get kicked down the can um, by a couple of months. We have short-term extensions uh, and, you know, we push things off as long as we can possibly push things off. So it is always a challenge. We do always get it done. Um, you know, I, I think that is the lesson. We don't uh, default on our obligations. We don't shut down the government. Um, right. And but, so that's but, what I think will happen again. But so there was a resolution to the debt ceiling. Subsequent to that, 
And it happened with Republican votes in the Senate. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sent a letter to the Majority Leader Charles Schumer saying you will get no help from Republicans the next time around. And there were some hurt feelings and there was a sentiment among Republicans. And I think even Senator Manchin might have shared it that Senator Schumer was a little too aggressive to condemning uh, on the uh, in the aftermath of the resolution of the debt ceiling. So Democrats have said they're not going to use this reconciliation process to raise the debt ceiling. How do you think that gets raised if you don't do that? It looks like this is going to have to be a singular act of House Democrats and Senate Democrats within some aspect of reconciliation to raise the debt ceiling and therefore avoid default. Well, there's... Uh, any number of hypocrisy levels coming from the Republicans on this. I just want to point out to your listeners that when we talk about raising the debt ceiling, this is to pay for debts that have already been incurred. It's like buying something on a credit card and then the credit card comes due and you say, nope, not going to pay for it. And that's what the debt ceiling is about. And so, Another metaphor I've heard is dining and dashing. Yeah, dining and dashing would be another good one, right? And so this is to pay for debts that were previously incurred. And as you know, Major, the Trump administration and Republicans incurred $8 trillion in debt over the last four years. And all of a sudden, they're saying they don't want to pay for it. Um, And what happens when they say that is if the United States were to default, it would be the United States of America that defaults, not Republicans, not Democrats, but the United States of America. And so in the past, no matter who's in power, both parties have agreed to lift the debt ceiling because it's for debts that were already paid. And America's got to be good for, for what we said we do, right? And so that's, um, I think, very important. So when you say Mitch McConnell allowed uh, for this to move forward, I want to be clear that what he allowed for, and it was very important, it was necessary, and we, we appreciate it. Um, but what he allowed for is just for the bill to be considered yep. and then passed by only Democrats. But that process I was talking about, it's called a cloture vote. You have to get 60 votes to just allow a bill to be considered. He got 10 Republicans to go along with Democrats in allowing the bill to be considered, but it was still passed only by Democrats. So um, I think that this is just important because the obstructionism of Republicans is on display every minute. Let's see what happens. In the end, it was Democrats who raised the debt ceiling. I just want to be very clear about that. And so if that has to happen again... Um, in December, then Democrats will step up to the responsibilities that we have always undertaken, that the United States will not default on our obligations. Even if that means using reconciliation as a legislative device? I'm going to leave that to the Senate Majority Leader. He knows his caucus. He knows what they're going to do. This is a Senate issue. Um, and, you know, I, I leave it to him to, to figure out what is best. So do you believe that the infrastructure bill and Build Back Better will be on the president's desk by the end of this month, meaning October? Well, I don't know what the timing will be, Major, uh, because as I said, you know, we it's important that we get this right and that we get everybody on board, and that's going to take a little bit of negotiation. I do believe that we will get both bills to the president's desk, both the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. He will sign them into law, and we will deliver on once-in-a-generation transformational investments that will allow Americans to wake up and feel differently about their lives every day. Right. So the reason I ask about October is because someone who I know listens to the show, because he's been on this show, Terry McAuliffe, is running for governor in Virginia. And he has said, I need to get something to talk about in Virginia in the context of successes, legislative successes that are definable in my race, that would help me. 
and it would lift the president's popularity because that's somewhat lagging in Virginia. His words, not mine. Will this be done in time for the November 3rd, I believe, early November, gubernatorial election in Virginia? Well, the governor is a, the gubernatorial candidate, McAuliffe, is a consummate politician. And I hope that what he runs on is uh, the American Rescue Plan. We cut child poverty in half. So we, don't count on Build Back Better or infrastructure. I, I'm just saying he should be talking about everything that we have delivered already. We have increased vaccination rates, shots in arms, money in people's pockets, poverty down, um, you know, all kinds of assistance to small businesses to keep them going. These are the things that every single Democrat, including candidates, should be talking about on the road so that people understand what we have done. And again, I think he certainly understands the process of negotiation, and I hope he would be supportive of the president's agenda and making sure we deliver on the entirety of the president's agenda. Is he blame shifting? I can't speak to what he's doing. I just hope that he gets out there and talks about how we cut poverty and child poverty in half, how we delivered shots in arms, how we finally, you know, continued to get money to small businesses. I mean, so many things that um, every candidate on the road should be talking about that Democrats have delivered. Right. So polls taken about the American Rescue Plan don't show a lot of awareness of things that you just mentioned. A recent poll that CBS did in consultation with YouGov also showed that people don't know what's in Build Back Better. So I want to ask you, what is there? Is there a central problem that congressional Democrats have, either talking about what they want to do or explaining what they have done? Because there seems to be a gap between your awareness and the general public's awareness. Yes, I do think that's true. I mean, we did a lot of work after the American Rescue Plan to try to get out the word to people. But obviously, um, you know, we then shifted immediately to working on the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Act. And so we need to make sure we're still talking about everything we've done. Um, one of the things about the focus on the Build Back Better Act over the last month is that we've been able to tell people what we're doing. And you know what? They are so these investments are so popular. I mean, the home and community-based care, there was a study that came out of Harvard uh, poll that showed that that's one of the most popular things in the country. Medicare expansion, incredibly popular. So this is an opportunity for us to talk about it. Um, the president has been doing that more, and I'm hoping that he continues to do that. He did a great job in Michigan talking about everything that's in the Build Back Better Act. He's had events on prescription drug pricing negotiation, which is really important to him. Uh, bringing in real people, right? Talking about how they're making choices between prescription drugs and their rent. That is outrageous in the richest country in the world where drug manufacturers are making so much money during uh, this pandemic and should be willing to negotiate the price of prescription drugs. So um, that's important, Major. We, we know we've got to make sure that people know what we're doing and what's in the Build Back Better Act because it is so popular. So we like policy on this show. We like wonkiness, but we also like crass politics as well. Um, can Democrats retain control of the House and Senate in the midterm elections if they don't pass infrastructure or build back better? I believe we have to pass those two things if we want to retain our majorities, because voters delivered us the House, the Senate, and the White House on promises. 
And we had incredible turnout from young people, from black, brown, indigenous people, from poor people. We got states we never thought we'd get, like Georgia and Arizona. And if we are going to keep people engaged in our democracy, then the ultimate swing voter is the young person or the person who typically would vote Democrat, but they're disillusioned that Democrats are going to fight for them. So let's fight for them. Let's get these two bills. And then I believe we'll keep the House, the Senate and the White House. That is the voice of Pramila Jayapal, head of the House Progressive Caucus. I'm Major Garrett, segment four of The Takeout, in just one second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Pramila Jayapal is our special guest. So uh, continuing our conversation about crass politics, is it your belief, Congresswoman, that all those who are hand-wringing in Washington right now talking about disarray and Democrats divided, when these two bills are passed, no one in the country will remember that. All they will remember is what happened. And if it takes an extra six, eight, ten weeks, whatever it takes, it's worth the cost of all those weeks of unfavorable, if even caustic, headlines. Yes, that is my belief. And I wish people wouldn't do so much hand wringing and use the, you know, 24 hour news channel cycle to um, actually tell people what we're talking about. What what is in these bills? What are these transformative investments that would finally bring America up to the place where other uh, peer countries, wealthy countries are. You know, there was just an article in the New York Times about paid leave major. I mean, it is unbelievable to me that the United States does not invest in paid leave, in childcare, in so many things that other peer countries do. So yes, I wish that the headlines would turn away from the Democrats in disarray to the actual policies that we're talking about, help us to help people understand what this is. Um, and in 10 weeks, nobody's going to remember once we get these two bills done. Will this work be done by Thanksgiving? Well, we're working as hard as we can. I hope it's done, you know, as, as soon as humanly possible. Uh, but we got to get it right. And we, we will deliver both of them. But we need to have the time to be able to go through this process. And you outlined for our audience uh, in rich detail the five buckets that progressives have identified. If I understood you correctly, all five need to be in there. So That's none of correct. them are negotiable. You will not take one bucket out of the final legislative package, but they can be shorter in duration. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, you know, look, we're not drawing ultimate red lines on anything, but what we're saying is this is what we believe constitutes a transformative package that keeps our promises to everybody and leaves nobody behind. So I want to shift our attention a little bit to uh, comments not made this Sunday by the second-ranking House Republican, Steve Scalise. He's the minority whip. He was asked on a Sunday show several times if the presidential election 2020 was stolen. He would refuse to answer that question. He talked about states not following the legislative priorities or the legislative prerogatives in conducting their elections, giving room and space to those who continue to believe the big lie. I want your reaction to that. 
I watched it. It was on Fox News. Um, it was Chris Wallace who was asking him those questions, not not you know an MSNBC or CNN reporter. Uh, uh, dangerous. That is my reaction. Incredibly dangerous for the number two Republican to not even be able to answer the question about the election being stolen with a clear no. It was not. It was not stolen. Democracy worked. Voting worked. Joe Biden is our president. That's what he should have said. He could have said, like it or not, Joe Biden is our president. He could have said all the things he disagrees with. But what we're talking about here is democracy. And what he is putting into question with the big lie is democracy. And that is the most dangerous thing that I can imagine, the Republican Party going to become truly the the party of the big lie. So I know you know the answer to this question. There's a member of the House of Representatives in good standing, is there not, Congresswoman Jayapal, who won her race by seven votes? Yes. From Iowa? Yes. She's a Republican, isn't she? Yes, she is. So what I don't understand, and this is a rhetorical question, you don't need to answer it, is how a party who can be certain that a sitting member of Congress in good standing can be there with a margin of seven votes and a president may not be elected legitimately with a margin of 7 million. That is exactly the big lie. That is the big lie. Because they are not contesting the down-ballot races that delivered Republicans to the House or to the Senate. Much to your chagrin. Yeah, right. But that's You guys kind of blew it down-ballot in 2020. I mean, that's the reality. And yet they're contesting... The president, and they're just going, and you even see institutionalists like Chuck Grassley um, going and, you know, who, who, people who criticized Trump and blamed Trump for January 6th, now sharing the stage with him because they've made a cold political calculation that their staying in power depends on Trump and therefore they don't care about democracy and they're going to support the big lie. I want to read you something that was recently published in the Washington Post. I'll quote directly from the first three paragraphs, because this deals with the January 6th insurrection. When we talked to you on January 21st, you recounted the harrowing moments you spent in the House gallery, fearing for your life as other House members feared for their lives. Here's the first three paragraphs. Of the roughly 600 people charged in the January 6th Capitol attack, 78 remained jailed pending trial, with the majority of those still detained, accused of assaulting police officers or some of the worst violence seen that day. Defendants are being jailed pending trial at lower rates than federal defendants nationwide charged with similar offenses, however, and nearly half face misdemeanors that typically carry little or no prison time for first offenders. No one charged with a misdemeanor remains jailed. This goes on to say that the rates of incarceration and prosecution in this do not fit with other crimes of similar nature in the federal system. What is your reaction to that data? I have read those reports and seen that data as well, and I'm troubled by it. Um, We will have the Attorney General before the Judiciary Committee uh, shortly, and we do plan to ask him about that. Um, I know the Senate is also looking at this. I know the Oversight Committee, the Select Committee on January 6th is also looking at this data. Um, it is troubling. Is it too light a touch? I, I need to understand why it's happening, uh, but it's troubling. Another uh, piece of information that has recently surfaced, uh, this is a report also in the Washington Post, A former senior official in the U.S. Capitol Police 
accused two of the department's top officials of failing to properly share vital intelligence in the days ahead of the January 6th insurrection, crippling the response to the attack. This is from a whistleblower who authored a blistering letter criticizing two senior officials saying that they had warnings as early as December 21st that they didn't convey to upper echelon management of the Capitol Police or congressional leaders. How troubled are you about that? I am very troubled. You may remember, Major, that I questioned Attorney General Barr at the t- uh, last summer about the discrepancy in the way that Black Lives Matter individuals uh, protesters were being treated versus the way that uh, some of these white supremacist, gun-toting, Nazi flag-carrying um, uh, people that invaded the Michigan State Capitol, um, threatening to kill and kidnap the uh, governor, which of course we later found to be a real thing. Um, there was a real difference in the way the two were treated. And I think that we are still seeing the the fallout of that where even Capitol Police were being instructed perhaps or were doing it on their own, unsure, unclear um, from all the to, data, to treat January 6th differently, to not treat it as the real threat to our democracy that it was. Does it read to you like a willful misreading of the intelligence? I, it's either a willful misreading or it's clear stupidity. I think the second is unlikely. That is the voice of Pramila Jayapal. She is the leader of the House Progressives in the House of Representatives, represents Washington. Seattle is her home district. Congresswoman Jayapal, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so very much for being with us. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. But for those watching on CBSN and on the podcast platform, stay tuned to the Takeout Outtake, especially Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Our guest, Pramila Jayapal, Congresswoman from the great state of Washington, leader of the House Progressive Caucus. So we've done the fun and games thing because you've been on the program before, Congresswoman. So I want to have kind of a conversation you might not be expecting, but I think you can handle. So as you well know, uh, Senate Wright websites, Cable news, etc., talk about cancel culture, and they are making a political issue out of it, wokeness and everything else. But recently I've come across articles in places not those that I've just mentioned or obliquely referred to, but in The Atlantic, The Economist, raising concerns about what they consider The Economist in a front-page magazine article called it the illiberal left. And The Atlantic talked about the rise of the new Puritans, and both of them raised this idea that there is a kind of enforcement mechanism going on in progressive circles that is overtly harsh on those who they feel have somehow transgressed. There is no due process or little due process. There's no room for forgiveness. And there is something happening in our culture that is constricting and potentially harmful. I'd like your general observations. Again, these are not things being said on Fox News or similarly oriented center-right 
or far-right outlets. But this is coming from other places, The Atlantic, The Economist. Your thoughts? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a very important question um, and conversation. Uh, What I would say is that many of these um, things are happening in scenarios where the racial inequities, the income inequalities, the gender inequities, and intolerance for a majority view in the past have prevailed. So in other words, when people don't even acknowledge that racism is real or that slavery was real or that there needs to be a real conversation around slavery and reparations, even if it's a conversation, even if it's not about paying people, when people refuse to acknowledge that and then you see an event, let's say a police officer putting his knee on the neck of a black man for eight minutes and 46 seconds and essentially choking the life out of that man on on for everyone to see then what you are going to have is a ballooning of that sense of intolerance that we are not going to take this anymore we need to be heard we need to have these issues come forward and that's i think what you're seeing even when you think about sexism and what women have had to put up with through the centuries and still today i mean still happening today and powerful mostly white men getting away with it that sense of fury and rage is part of what creates this kind of push to say, we're just not going to accept that anymore. And if you all won't do it, if you won't talk about it, if you won't hold people accountable, then we will. All of that said, I have always said, I think we need to both call people out and call people in. It is okay for people to change their view on something. It is actually good. It's what we want is for people to come to new realizations and new understandings of who they are today versus who they were 10 years ago. That's not to say they shouldn't be held accountable, but I do think we've got to find a way to allow people to change because at the end of the day, that is an important and valued thing for somebody to be able to say, you know what, I was wrong and I'm not expecting you to trust me that I'm going to do things differently, but I want you to give me a chance to show you that I might. That I think is an okay thing. But it's got to come with some accountability, particularly in the most uh, outrageous of circumstances. Sure. And sometimes that accountability means losing a job. And in some cases, once you lose that job, you lose all other access to things. And is that acceptable? I mean, look, look at all the people that have lost all access to things, women who have been in these positions where they've been pushed out of a job because they wouldn't sleep with somebody or, you know, black folks who uh, are, are not even considered for a job because of something they did when they were a kid that was a misdemeanor, wasn't even uh, a major crime. Um, there's so many ways in which racism and sexism and classism have permeated our society and not even been talked about that I think you have to understand and allow for the anger and people saying, we don't trust you, you're not going to deal with this, so we will. Mm -hmm. And is there anything about you that fears this pendulum either has or may swing too far in the direction of retribution that doesn't allow that space that you talked about to grow or to come back in? No, I mean, look, I just think that these are big shifts in the country that um, require us to all be patient and generous and loving, but also clear and hold people accountable. And so, 
this is one of those shifts. And you see how difficult it is to move the needle on things like racism and sexism and classism. And so I, I think it'll be, I think it's important for us to talk about it, but let's talk about it in a way that's real, not about cancel culture, which completely ignores that those things even existed to start with. Um, and that there are still people who are not acknowledging them to be real. So uh, this was not exactly a fun and games conversation, but I think it's an important one. And I thank you, Congresswoman, for indulging in those questions, because I do think it's a topic that is appearing in lots of different places and being tugged at in lots of different ways. And I just wanted to run it by you and get your thoughts. So I appreciate that very much. That is the voice of Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. I'll take a special. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Major. Thank you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.